Buenos dias. Good morning and welcome to Convocation. I'm Libby Smith. And I'm Lindsay Beck. This morning, this summer's Nicaragua SST group would like to share with you what our SST experience was like. As you might have already experienced here this morning, as we entered, Nicaragua is a country rich in culture with its own unique sights, smells, sound, and sounds. The things you heard here were common sounds on the streets in Nicaragua. We would like to begin with a few facts about Nicaragua. Nicaragua is a country located in Central America between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans and is a neighbor to Honduras on the north and Costa Rica on the south. It is a tropical country with temperatures ranging from 90s in the lowlands to 50s in the mountains. The national language in Nicaragua is Spanish, although there are many indigenous languages spoken on the Atlantic coast. Because our group was the first SST unit to return to Nicaragua since 1978, we knew very little about what to expect. We knew basic facts about the country, like it was the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, and exports include coffee and tropical fruit. But really, upon arrival, we were headed into a crash course of Nika Culture 101. Our group consisted of eight men and 15 women from 10 different states studying, thir studying 13 different majors. We spent our first six weeks attending Spanish classes in the morning, lectures in the afternoons, and in, in the evenings usually with our families. Our group of 23 bonded quickly over sh shared experiences within a new culture. Our morning conversations generally began with sharing family miscommunications from the previous nights. For example, here are just two language mix-ups. In Spanish, como no actually means yes. And there's a difference between hombre and hombre. One means hungry and one means man. You can see how mixing these up would bring a little laughter and confusion to the family. Our group was led by Dr. Doug Sherrick, a chemistry professor here at Goshen, and his wife, Maria Sanchez Sherrick, a native of San, Mar San Marco, Nicaragua, and their three children, Jessica, Junie, and Joshua. Both Doug and Maria have spent significant portions of their lives living and working in Nicaragua. Our group was blessed to have leaders who were so knowledgeable about the country and culture. More than that, the passion and love that Doug and Maria demonstrated for the country instilled in all of us the desire to really invest ourselves, and we came away with a deep appreciation for the people, country, and culture of Nicaragua. Now that we've introduced you to our country and our group, it is our hope that through stories, song, and photos, you can begin to get a glimpse of our amazing three-month journey in Nicaragua. Hello, I'm Maria Byler. And I'm Sarah Weersma. Um, and we lived near each other on the study portion. So this is about study here. Unlike most SST groups, which have their study portion in a large city or capital, our first half of SST was based in three smaller towns in the state of Carrasso. On our first day in Carrasso, all 23 of us practiced using the local transportation, a variety of taxis and buses during our first week with host families before classes started. Many of us were drilled on how to use the public transportation, only to wake up that first day of class to find that transportation was no longer an option. On that morning, I woke up and got ready for classes. I had spent at least two hours the day before role-playing taxi scenarios with my host mom. She was sure I did not understand the concept of correct change. At breakfast, my family asked how I was getting to school. 
assuming this was just another review of the day before, I launched into my explanation of the taxi system. My mom just looked at me and said, there are no taxis. I was not able to figure out if there were really no taxis or if my Spanish-speaking ability was just that bad. Turns out, there really were no taxis. Apparently, unbeknownst to us, for several weeks before we arrived in Nicaragua, tension had been building between the transportation workers and the government over gas prices. The entire country's transportation system had gone on strike the night before our first day of classes. Much to our confusion, Sarah and I did end up taking a strike-breaking taxi to school that day. After that, transportation was shut down completely, and we ended up walking to and from school every day for two weeks. It took us a while to figure out the most efficient way around the city. That first morning, our family told us it would take about 10 minutes to make the trip at gringo pace. In fact, it took 40, and we were late to class. Once we got the hang of it and figured out the best route, it became a routine that we looked forward to both at the beginning and end of our day. We got used to seeing the same things each day on our way home. The first part of our walk took us through the middle of town. We passed street vendors selling mangoes, ice cream, diaper pins, and much more. There were small stores called pulperias about every block. Some of them had funny names like Pulperia Jennifer, Pulperia Kelly, and Pulperia Los Niños Divinos de Jesús, Pulperia the Divine Children of Jesus. Next, we passed through the market. The market was crowded, noisy, and smelly. The street was packed with people, cars, and bikes. In the market, you could find most any food you were looking for, and even some you weren't. Almost anything you can imagine was sold there. Makeup, headphones, watch batteries, used clothes, garden hoses, and a pig's head if you wanted. The best part of the walk for me was the last five minutes. By then, we were in our neighborhood, walking on a sidewalk or a very narrow road that doubled as a horse path, play place, and home to several dogs. We often passed the same kids who daily asked us for a word in English. As we neared my house, my nieces and nephews would come running around the corner yelling our names and giving us big hugs. It always felt like coming home. One reason I loved our walk so much was because it gave uh, the time Maria and I to talk. Uh, when, whether we were navigating the busy market, walking through town, we had a chance to talk in English about our day, the awkward moments, the language mishaps, and how much food we managed to eat at the last meal. Because we both came to enjoy the walk so much, we continued walking once the strike was over. Some of our favorite sights? Horses grazing in the median of the road. The biggest pig we've ever seen. And some really strange mutt dogs. <laughs> I'm Carla Santiago, and I'm going to talk a little bit about um, one of our lectures from study. On study, my host dad liked to tell me a lot of stories. One that he seemed to enjoy telling me most was about his involvement in the literacy campaign. He would tell me all about how he went on many adventures with his campesinos in the rivers of Bluefields. I was never able to fully understand exactly what he went through until one of our lectures. Padre Fernando Cardenal came and spoke with us. He was the man who had planned this famous literacy crusade in the early 80s, just following the triumph of the revolution. He organized groups of people, mainly young people, to leave their homes and go out into the campo and teach the campesinos to read. At the time that this crusade started, the illiteracy rate in Nicaragua was 51%. By the time it ended, just five months later, the illiteracy rate was down to 13%. It was an incredible undertaking. This campaign happened during the Contra War, and many of the young people lost their lives during this endeavor. 
and even more were in constant danger. They were threatened and tortured, but they never gave up. Padre Cadrenal told us many stories of the strength and persistence of these young people. And it really helped me to understand my host dad more and truly appreciate the things that he did for his country. I'm Josh Tyson, and this morning I'd like to talk about some of the major political events that have happened in Nicaragua in the 20th century. Now, in the interest of time, I can't go into too much detail, and I'm going to have to move kind of fast. So if anything I say interests you, I encourage you to check into it some more. So starting in 1912, the U.S. sends Marines to occupy Nicaragua. The Marines will stay until 1933. 1927, Nicaraguan General Augusto Sandino leads a guerrilla war, first against the U.S.-backed Nicaraguan Conservative Party, and later against the Marines themselves. 1933, the fighting against Sandino forces the Marines to withdraw from Nicaragua. Before they leave, the Marines set up the Nicaraguan National Guard, essentially the Nicaraguan Army. The Marines place a man named Anastasio Somoza Garcia in control of the National Guard. Tensions between Somoza and Sandino will lead to Sandino's assassination in, in early 1933. 1937. With control of the National Guard, Somoza seizes control of the Nicaraguan government. With little or no means of armed resistance against him, the Somoza family will rule Nicaragua for more than 40 years. 1961. A few Nicaraguan students, looking back to Sandino, create the Sandinista National Liberation Front, or the FSLN. Although small, this group quickly gains the attention of much of Nicaragua, including dictator Somoza. 1972. By now, Somoza's corruption has become more well-known. In December 1972, an earthquake destroys much of Managua, Nicaragua's capital city. Nicaragua receives millions of dollars in international aid. Somoza funnels this money into his personal funds. With this and his refusal to build, rebuild Managua, for the first time, widespread, widespread resentment against Somoza begins to grow. The resentment culminates in a revolution against Somoza in 1978-79, led by the Sandinista party. July 1979, the triumph of the revolution. Somoza flees the country. National conditions at this time include billions of dollars in national debt, a devastated economy, and from the revolution, 50,000 dead and 600,000 homeless. 1981. Resentment in Nicaragua begins to grow against the by now mostly Sandinista government. Counter-revolutionary groups, or Contras, begin to form against the Sandinistas. Throughout the 1980s, resentment leads to violence with the Sandinista-Contra War. The U.S. funds Contra fighters, first covertly and later publicly. Although the Sandinistas were guilty of some human rights violations during this time, the Contras were carrying out indiscriminate attacks on citizens, especially those appearing to benefit from government programs. Other major national concerns include food shortages and severe economic problems. 1990. Nicaraguans are tired of fighting and are willing to look past party and ideological differences in order to stop the violence. In the 1990 general election, the Sandinistas lose power. The toll of the war includes 50,000 dead and $12 billion worth of damages. Since 1990, in the present-day government, most of the corruption of the past is still evident. There is a lot of criticism today against the current administration of Daniel Ortega, the Sandinista president who ruled during the 1980s. 
So for my SST final project, I wanted to look at the folk music of Nicaragua, and especially how political and historical events in Nicaragua have influenced this music. One song that kept coming up in my interviews with people was called Nicaragua Nicaraguita. It was written by Carlos Mejia Godoy, Nicaragua's most prominent folk song writer. In this song, the singer talks about how much he loves Nicaragua, his Nicaraguita, his precious little Nicaragua. He says, Nicaragua, you are sweeter than honey. You are the most beautiful flower of my desire. He then ends this song with the, with the words, but now that you are free, Nicaragua, that is, free from the rule of dictator Somoza, I love you so much more. This song is so popular that it is considered by many to be Nicaragua's second national anthem. We would like to do this song for you now. Carla and Tara are going to help me out. So we hope you enjoyed this little piece of Nicaraguan culture. My name is Alex Kasky, and uh, this is Rusty and Kyle. And for our service assignment, uh, we went to a remote town called Candelaria in the department of Boaco, which is located in central Nicaragua. We were told there are about 250 people that live there, but I don't think we saw more than about 100 of those while we were there. There's about 35 houses in the town that were made out of anything from wood, mud, stone, and uh, occasionally concrete cinder blocks. The, the nearest town with internet access, which we were very concerned about, was uh, six to seven miles away, which doesn't sound that far away until you realize it was a one-hour bus ride because the road conditions were so bad. Buses would pass by uh, the town at 3.30 a.m., 5.20 a.m., and 5.40 a.m. So if you wanted to go do your, your shopping, you were up with the roosters, which wasn't very hard, actually, because they were everywhere in our rooms. Um, <laughs> 
the buses would come back between 1 and 3 p.m., uh, and if you missed that, it was a long walk home. About five years ago, uh, Candelaria received a water pump so that they finally had, had a well and running water. Before that, they had to walk about 45 minutes one way to get water. And a month before we got there, they got electricity. Agriculture is definitely the way of life in, uh, in Candelaria. Every male over the age of 12 is working in the field. Um, and we actually got to experience uh, some of that while we were there. They make, uh, the, the men working in the field make anywhere from $2.50 to $4 a day. Um, but keep in mind, they can only work in the field about half of the year. Uh, so, so lots of the men actually go to Costa Rica during uh, the summer months to find work. We were there uh, with an organization called ASO Phoenix, which is a non-governmental organization that worked at rural development projects. We were told we would be doing reforestation, and I guess we did, kind of, for like four hours in the six weeks we were there. Uh, it involved walking down to a, a schoolyard, picking some seeds off of a tree, letting them dry out, and then planting them alongside the road. So hopefully that works. Um, <laughs> We also, we spent most of our time building fences uh, to fence in gardens to keep the animals out. Uh, and then once a week, we would go with our, our brothers and fathers and work out in the field, which meant waking up at about 4 a.m. and then taking anywhere from a 20-minute to hour-and-a-half walk through the bush. Um, and then we'd get out there and get to put our machetes to use, which we actually weren't very good at. And I think we cut more corn than we did weeds. But... Um, yeah, it, it was a really interesting experience. Um, most of the adults there are illiterate, uh, probably like 60 or 70 percent of the people. They, they can't even read numbers. Like, they can't read digital, like a digital clock. They wouldn't be able to tell the time sometimes. Um, there's a, there are a lot of machismo. Uh, machismo was much more evident there than it was in the city. And um, we were pretty shocked by some of their narrow worldviews. They would ask us questions like, are there horses in the United States? Or uh, I think the best one was, are there rocks? And we're like, yeah, there's rocks. And one guy asked us if there was corn in the United States. And we're like, yeah, actually, there's a lot of corn. I think there's way more corn in the United States than there is here. He's like, no, no. <laughs> there is not more corn in the United States than there is in Nicaragua. We're like, all right. So I think we need to send him a picture or something, because I don't think he's going to get it. Um, Candelaria was definitely a very uh, poor town. Even in that remote area, it was probably the poorest. Uh, but I think we would all agree that by the time we left, we didn't really feel like we were leaving uh, a poor community because what they lacked financially, they definitely made up uh, in spirit and hospitality. Um, I'm a, I'm a, yeah. If you noticed, uh, when me and Alex and uh, Rusty walked in, uh, we sort of crouched down in the front for about five minutes, and this became known to us as the Campesino Crouch, which, which the men would do for hours on end in the evenings talking to each other. The most we ever managed was maybe five minutes, so, so feel free to give it a try. But, but that was the main, either you sit on a rock or you crouch, and you would just chat for the whole evening. So... I'm going to read a journal excerpt that I wrote uh, more the beginning of my stay in Candelaria, and this is about the kids. Um, what we eventually found out is there really isn't a moment you spend in the town without some kid around you, if not four or five. They were basically the life of the, 
of the little village. And so I wrote a journal entry reflecting on that. Um, I think I can honestly say that I've never met a happier bunch of kids than the kids here in Candelaria. It is pretty amazing since this is the closest I've been to poverty in my life. Between swimming, hanging out, playing with a soccer ball, and throwing rocks, I've spent the majority of my time around kids, and it's been great. They're always ready to laugh and always walk around with a smile on their face. It doesn't matter that most of them run around barefoot or that the toys they have are the rocks they find on the ground. So far, a deflated soccer ball has been the center of about every game, and they seem to love it. Along with loving to have fun, these kids are also very hardworking. The first morning I woke up, I walked out to find my three little sisters carrying rocks on their head from the road to the house in order to build walls around the kitchen. They did not complain once and even enjoyed seeing how many rocks they could stack on their head. I can only imagine what my response would have been at that age if I were told to carry rocks for hours at a time, but my guess it would not have been the same as them. Uh, these first few days I've been very humbled by these kids and I can only hope to have as big of impact on them as they have and will have on me. Uh, as our service term came to a close for one of my last journals, um, I wrote about things that I wanted to remember, uh, things that I experienced or uh, seen or done. And so I did this in a way that it starts off with, uh, you haven't lived in Blocko until dot, dot, dot. And here are a few of those uh, entries. Um, first one is, you haven't lived in Blocko until you try shooting a slingshot for the third or fourth time, but instead of the rock being launched in the air, the rock just ricochets off your hand and leaves the mark of the amateur. And then you get laughed at. Uh, you haven't lived in Blanco until you realize no matter how much you practice with the slingshot, any six-year-old campesino child uh, probably has a better chance of hitting the target that you're aiming at than you do. Uh, the third, you haven't lived in Blanco until you get desperate enough to use the internet but don't want to take the 5 a.m. bus into town, so you run the six and a half miles into town on one of the hilliest and muddiest roads. Uh, you haven't lived in Waco until you are woken from a nap with a dead rabbit in your face and your uncle boasting how your host brother just killed it with his slingshot. <laughs> and then continuously goes on to ask if you've ever killed anything with your slingshot. <laughs> and the answer is always no. Uh, you've never lived in Buaco until you see someone or yourself use a machete to cut their toenails or fingernails. Uh, you've never lived in Buaco until you wake up at 4.30 a.m. to catch a bus to the capital of Buaco at 5. You get, up to the, you get to the bus stop, someone tells you it's not coming, someone tells you it's just late, and someone else tells you there are two buses coming. You wait for two hours, there is no bus, but after another hour of waiting, you hitchhike back, you hitchhike in the back of a truck. Meanwhile, it's been raining since 12 a.m. You ride in the truck while it's raining, and you come to a small stream that has become impassable. So you wait for two hours, then decide to walk the three miles back to your village, Candelaria, in which you have to cross another three streams that have gotten to be almost waist deep, and finally end up back in Candelaria around 1.30 p.m. after having traveled eight and a half hours and gotten nowhere. Hi, I'm Allie Hawkins, and Lindsay and I had a slightly different experience than the Balaka boys on our service assignment. 
Lindsay and I spent our six weeks of service working at an organization called Los Pepitos um, in the city of Hinotega. This city is set in the valley of two beautiful mountain ranges. We found ourselves in awe of the beauty that surrounded us, even on the rainiest days when we would, when we would walk to our service organization, Los Pepitos, in complete downpours. Los Pepitos is an after-school program for children with a wide variety of handicaps. Some had Down syndrome, some were autistic, some were deaf, and others had severe learning disabilities. And one special little girl had severe anger issues, which caused little boys to cry every day during recess. Each afternoon, a different activity was held at Los Pepitos. This organization was similar to a boys and girls club. Um, for example, Monday we had dance class, Tuesday we had arts and crafts, Wednesday was a computer class, Thursday gym, and Friday a painting class. Attendance was fairly inconsistent, but there were some loyal students who came every single day. In the mornings before going to Los Pepitos, we worked at a school called Escuela Especial, which was affiliated with Los Pepitos. Allie and I worked, or Allie worked with 12 to 18 year olds and I worked with three to seven year olds. The kids, from, the kids had school from eight to noon with an hour break for recess at 10. But if it was raining or cloudy, they would let out at 11 or even 10. <coughs> if it was nice, they had recess all day. Occasionally, the kids were served food at 10 or sometimes 11. Once in a while, they would get a full meal or sometimes they would get just juice. Alan and I were generally pretty confused about which schedule we would follow that day as it was hardly ever the same. With all that said, Allie and I really enjoyed working at the school. Even though our lack of Spanish created a bit of a language barrier, working with the children was a wonderful experience. Lindsay and I lived together in the same house and even slept in the same bed for six weeks. We were fortunate enough to have a family that was extremely involved in our service location. Our 12-year-old host brother was diagnosed with mild Down syndrome, and he often participated in the activities offered by Los Pepitos. One day, I had to bring Jose Ramon home from Los Pepitos without Lindsay, who was recovering from a visit to the hospital. On our way back, we walked by a basketball court that had a bunch of younger guys sitting around and hanging out. I knew as soon as I walked by that the typical cat calls and whistling were coming. So I continued to walk by, heard the whistles, and to my surprise, soon heard laughter. Turns out, my 12-year-old brother, whom I was linked arms with, stopped, turned around, and shot that group of guys the biggest grin that a 12-year-old could make. <laughs> he was so proud to be walking with me that he couldn't help but taunt those guys who were trying to get my attention. When we weren't in school or at Los Pepitos, we found ourselves building relationships with our sisters and parents. Our sisters didn't have jobs outside the home, so they spent their days doing all the housework. Allie and I were probably scolded weekly for how messy our room was. Our mom and dad owned a pulperia, which is a corner store that supplied everything and anything we would have ever needed. It was the most popular in our neighborhood, so it kept them pretty busy. In the evenings, we played countless games of rummy as well as Dutch Blitz with our sisters. In return, they taught us how to make tostones and gallo pinto. Our family showed us they loved us and they took care of us and were truly considered daughters. I especially, I especially felt this love and concern one night towards the end of service. It was 9 p.m. and I had developed a horrible headache. Mom sent me up to bed with a cup of tea, and as soon as I got to the edge of our bed, I passed out, and the cup shattered as it hit the floor. When I woke up, I first saw Allie, then I felt my mom trying to get me to stand up. Next, I heard my sisters crying loudly, and Allie just kept reassuring me, everything's fine. <laughs> I had no idea what had happened. They helped me down the stairs, and the next thing I know, we were flying through town, headed towards the hospital, in our neighbor's truck, hitting every single pothole. 
Turns out after four hour hospital stay, I was just dehydrated and had a bit of an infection. But my family stayed by my side through the whole experience and took care of me just as the same as how my family here in the States would have taken care of me. Lindsay and I truly enjoyed our, our experience in Hinotega. We learned a lot from our students, our family, and our coworkers. And building on that last one a little bit, I'm going to talk some more about the Nika hospitality that I think all of us encountered many, many times. The hospitality that I experienced uh, was, of course, especially obvious with both of my host families. Before moving in with my first family uh, during the study half of SST, there were already nine people living in the small house that I was moving into. And as far as I could ever tell, there were only three bedrooms for us, which meant that my oldest of sisters, who I believe was 20, had to move out of her room and share a room with her siblings so that I would have a room for myself. The community that I moved into for the second half of SST, the service half, was quite possibly even more intensely hospitable. As a small community of roughly 500 people, not only were they kind and generous to guests and visitors, but there was also an atmosphere of generosity between all of the neighbors there. Most houses were usually filled with guests, people sitting around talking, drinking coffee, and anyone who happened to be there around a mealtime always got a plate of rice and beans. Sometimes this meant that at 4.30 I would get supper at one house, and by the time I would get home to my own house at 6.30, I would have another plate of food, which was especially bad for me because for some reason I was having a really hard time forcing down one plate of food, let alone two, which I tried to explain as politely as possible to my family so as not to offend them but I think they spent a good portion of their time worrying about my health. Uh, in fact, they actually had me write down a list of everything that I enjoyed and everything that I didn't enjoy so that they could improve my experience the next week. So the one time then that I actually did have some weird stomach problems on service and I subtly ran out to the bathroom to our outhouse after the meal so that I could maybe throw up a little bit, my first thought was that I should absolutely not tell them this because they would be so worried about me. So of course, on my way back inside, this happens to be the only time I think I ever saw anyone going out to the latrine as I was coming back in. And it happened to be my host dad, who asked me if the latrine was occupied. And so I had to say, no, but I did just throw up a little bit. And so of course, he felt terrible and tried to explain this away to me that I was probably eating too fast, which definitely wasn't the case, or talking too much as I was eating, which also definitely wasn't the case. And then he ended up cleaning up the whole thing and not letting me help. So that's just one example, kind of a dramatic example of the day-to-day -day hospitality that I think all of us experienced. As you can see, we've had some unforgettable experiences. During our summer spent in Nicaragua, we discovered another culture and a new way of life. We experienced the love of another family and the acceptance of a world much different than our own. Our experiences in Nicaragua continue to shape our lives today, even as we have readjusted to daily life back here at Goshen College. We are not the same as we were a year ago. Our SST experience continues to shape and impact our decisions, our lifestyles, and the way we see the world. We hope that you enjoyed hearing a little bit about our summer and the things we learned. We enjoyed sharing them with, all, with you all today. Thank you, and have a great day. You're dismissed.